verse 22 and let us read down through verse 32. We will read down through verse uh, or study down through verse 39 today. But Acts 22 through 32 is our reading this morning. We change glasses here. And as we do every Sunday, let's read together and let's read aloud. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Shall we pray? You did good. That was a long passage. Father, we thank you and bless you for the opportunity now to come and to read and to study your word. We desire, Lord, to grow in its grace and knowledge and And certainly we pray that you would anoint and bless us and fill us with your spirit, that we might have that wisdom and understanding today. And Lord, may it be that we not only take your word in to uh, be more understanding for our own sake, but Lord, that we will see that you have called each and every one of us as your children to be witnesses of your life, of your light, of your love, and of your grace. And so, Lord God, may we take this message to the hearts of those that are needy, that are empty, that are lost, that are poor in the things, Lord, of your kingdom, so that they might know, Lord, the riches of your glory and grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. Could there have been a greater moment in the lives of the apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ up to that time than when they were experiencing the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit in their midst and then seeing the effects of that power 
drawing that curious crowd to them on the day of Pentecost. And then on top of it all, to hear Peter, that Galilean fisherman who stood to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ under the influence of the Spirit of God with such scriptural authority. We can say that there certainly were some amazing things taking place that day. The sound of a rushing mighty wind, the appearance of divided tongues of fire dispersed upon the 120, the testifying praises of God in languages known only to those in the crowd. But most significant was the boldness in which Peter stood to face the multitude before him as he proclaimed uh, the Word of God to them in explanation as to what was taking place there that day. And quoting from the prophet Joel, Peter responds to their perplexity when he tells them, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. And in explaining the baptism with the Holy Spirit, Peter turns his complete attention to the name of the baptizer himself. Jesus the Messiah. Because when he quotes that passage from Joel, he stops at a very important place. He stops there and and in verse 21 of Acts uh, chapter 2, it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so how great it is for us to realize that Peter then begins to preach that name. The name of Jesus Christ. And he points out three major proofs that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah of Israel as prophesied in the Hebrew Scriptures. First of all, he deals with the fact that Jesus had recognizable credentials. And again, you have to understand that everything he says comes right straight from the Word of God. He says Jesus had recognizable credentials. Secondly, he deals with the issue of Jesus' resurrection being convincing. Jesus' resurrection was indeed convincing because of the Word of God. And then Jesus, lastly, is the reigning Christ at God's right hand. These were three proofs. Now, there were other things interspersed within the whole text, but Jesus is, is being seen very clearly now, and Peter is making sure that he's not speaking about them, he's not speaking about other things, he is speaking directly to them about Jesus Christ, the Jesus that was taken to a cross and crucified. That same Jesus, this Jesus, you'll see many times how Peter emphasizes that particular fact. And so as we deal with Jesus having these recognizable credentials, we look at verses 22 through 24, the first three verses here. And Peter now begins once again, at least in in, in essence, to the message uh, that he's preaching. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. 
Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that He should be held by it. Men of Israel, he says, hear these words. It is here that Peter begins the essential portion of the message by boldly proclaiming the saving name of Jesus. Hear these words, and he says, Jesus of Nazareth. He wanted everyone to pay close attention to what he was saying. And he uses that phrase, hear these words. It is a more powerful phrase in the original language and even here in the English. But he says, hear these words. Just as he used that phrase in verse 14, let this be known to you and heed my words. He is constantly drawing their attention. You know, we oftentimes do that as, as, as teachers here in, in church and all. You know, we have to sometimes, you know, we see people kind of doing one of these and we have to kind of draw your attention, you know. But, but he was just drawing their attention with his words and with the name of Jesus Christ. And the apostle was making it clear that there wasn't any excuse for rejecting Christ. He's making it clear that there wasn't any excuse for rejecting Christ. Jesus had presented His credentials to the, to the whole nation with innumerable, with countless miracles. He referred to what these people already knew about Jesus. In other words, Peter did. He referred to them uh, of all that they already knew. He says, as you yourselves also know. So He wasn't telling them anything that they didn't know. It was something that was already out there. Uh, whether they had lived in Jerusalem or whether they came from these far reaches of, of, of the area, word traveled fast in those days. And when they began to hear, there's a man in Jerusalem or there's a man in the Galilee. There's somebody who's touching people. And, and, and this is why they came. This is why multitudes followed Jesus. Because of the things that He did. They were not denied. The miracles and the wonders were not denied. They were coming to Him because He was doing these things. Now, depending on what constitutes a miracle to some people, there are 36 miracles recorded in the New Testament, which is on average one a month for the three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we think, well, that's, that's nice. <laughs> but uh, what miracles they were. And by the way, it wasn't just 36 that he did. We just say that there are 36 that were recorded. Jesus turned water into wine. He walked on the sea. He walked on the Sea of Galilee. He, he multiplied loaves and fishes and he fed more than 5,000 men, which means that he fed at least his, their families anywhere from 10 to 12,000 people at one city by multiplying a, a little boy's lunch. He cast out demons. He cast out diseases. He cast out death in some. He healed the sick. He cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. Some were even lumped together. In other words, some of the miracles were lumped together as when it tells us that He healed them all. Now, there were times when Jesus would just be in some place and, and everybody came and He just stayed there and just healed them all, one at a time. And this is only a fraction of what He actually performed. We're told in John 21, verses 24 and 25 there, at the very end of this great Gospel of John, uh, it says, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's making it very clear that everything was, that was done by Jesus was eyewitness testimony, what John wrote down. And there are also many other things that Jesus did. Notice that. There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose, but even the world itself could not contain the books 
that would be written. Amen. Oh, the, the, the things that Jesus did. Who was this man that was tested by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs? So you see, there was no excuse. They had seen or they had heard or they knew from first-hand experience or even second-hand experience, but nonetheless they knew. The Lord had recognizable credentials proving that He was indeed the Messiah of Israel approved by God. He was of the tribe of Judah. He was of the line of David. He was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. God had called His Son out of Egypt. That was a a prophecy that was fulfilled when Mary and Joseph take, take Jesus into Egypt to protect Him from Herod. Later on, of course, they would come out, which fulfilled the prophecy. News, as I said before, spread fast in those days. And so they knew, and they accepted His miracles. They accepted the wonders and the signs that were done, because they were established facts. But the dilemma here now, was that since Jesus was put to death, they did not connect the miracles with His being the promised Messiah. You say, well, he did all of these things, but he died. Certainly, you know, the Messiah can't just come and die. And how they missed all of the things that were said in the Old Testament. And this is the reason why Peter's preaching the way he's doing. It's amazing that we don't really see a lot of of references to Isaiah 53 here. But of course, they'll come up, I'm sure. But now Peter addresses this very issue as well. This about the death of Jesus Christ. Because the death of Jesus Christ is not just the death of Jesus Christ. It is the death of Jesus Christ that leads to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which in fact is something that comes right out of the Old Testament as well. Not just about the fact that men will rise again. But the very fact that Messiah would be risen. Understand. Look at verse 23. Him, Peter says, of Jesus. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. And I want you to notice something here. Well, how Peter begins this this dissertation, as it were. By saying, first of all, that it was by God's determined plan and God's determined purpose Now he then, of course, mentions, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. But then he says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. First of all, Peter spoke of God's sovereign and predetermined plan, while at the same time pointing out the responsibility of man in Christ's death. And for many people, this is a source of tension as well as contention. That, that, that tension of, 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 of the, the knowledge of the sovereignty of God, but then there is the responsibility of man. If God is sovereign, why is man responsible? And in our finite minds, we want to be able to figure God out. 
Now, we could go back in Scripture all the way to the book of Genesis, all the way back to creation, all the way back to the, to the, to the creation of man and, and the things that God had told man that he would, would, would be able to uh, take of in the garden. And, and, of course, he would tell man and woman, you know, here, here's this garden. You know, we want you to come in here. I, I want you to come in here. I just want you to, you know, enjoy everything and all the trees in the, in the garden you can take and have as your food. But of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... He says, you shall not touch or, or nor eat the fruit of this tree because on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, we know the rest of the story. We know what happens when they take the fruit and of course, man then begins to die because they've fallen in sin and sin now is, it becomes from that point on what is uh, the nature of man. But nonetheless, we still, we still want to figure God out, you know, you know, uh, God's got to be, you know, for some people, we just got to be able to know everything. You know, how, how does sovereignty and, and, and responsibility, you know, how does it all come together? But, but, but how, how, do we, how do we figure out the fact that God is sovereign and man is responsible? J.B. Phillips, in his book, Your God is Too Small, writes this. I think it's a great statement. He says, if God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. Great statement. If God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. And you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, God has given us so much to know about him. He's given us so much to know about the way he does things. About, you know, going back to the garden, the very fact that, you know, in the garden, when man did sin and, and then they try to cover themselves up, you know, how, this is the way we are today. When we fall in sin, we want to try to cover ourselves up with something, you know, but, but, but God already provided a way for us through Jesus Christ. And he did it by giving us a picture even in the garden when he sees them in their, in their fig leaf, you know, outfit. You know, he says, hey, let me, I'll trade you. Give me those ugly, rough and, you know, itchy fig leaves and I'll, let me give you these sheepskins. But folks, there weren't any stores. He had to kill the sheep to skin them, to give them the skins so that they might wear that. What is the point here? The point is that something had to die and something had to shed blood. And it is a picture for us to see how God takes care of all of these things. In Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that, that we can know, God has revealed them to us. And folks, we have much to learn about God that we already know about. What we can't understand, we don't understand, but we know that we'll understand it in eternity. God is sovereign. God had a predetermined plan, yet man is still responsible. Why? <laughs> Well, I want you to understand it this way. The death of Christ was foreknown of God in eternity past. When he acted in creation, folks, he also acted in redemption when Jesus is described this way. And by the way, not in Genesis, but in the book of Revelation, Jesus is described this way in verse 8 of Revelation 13. It's really the last part of the verse. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb, notice, the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Slain from the foundation of the world. God foreknew this. God foreknew that this was necessary. God foreknew that this was going to take place. It wasn't a surprise to Him. Jesus knew coming into this world 
that this, is going to, this was going to take place. Because He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And then consider also what Jesus said of Himself in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, when He says, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And notice verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. He didn't come wondering what was going to happen if he began to preach the gospel of the kingdom and, 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 and you know, if the people received it, well, good. But he knew they wouldn't. He knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what was going to take place. Every moment, every step, everything that he did, he knew what was going to happen. He came for that very purpose. And what God has always known is that given a free will, man would fall in sin. God always knew that. God has always known that His holiness would demand full payment for that sin. God always knew that His love would provide a free pardon for that sin. God always knew that God would send His Son, the incarnate Christ, to be that sacrifice for sin. God always knew that man would crucify Him. And this was determined and taken into account by God's counsel. And so when Peter then mentions in his sermon, you have taken by lawless hands. He is making reference to both the Jews and the Gentiles. He's not just saying, listen you Jews, you've taken with your lawless hands. No, don't look at it that way. Why? Because the Jews did not have lawless hands. They had the law. The Jews were of the law. He says, you have taken by lawless hands. Who were the lawless hands? The Romans in particular, the Gentiles in general. The you is reference to the Jews. By lawless hands refers to the Romans and in general, as I said, to the Gentiles. That means them and us. Them and us. The foreknowledge of God, by the way. The foreknowledge of God in no way absolves man from his guilt for the most wicked thing ever done. But this is why Peter continues on. And this is why he says in verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Folks, Peter never batted an eye when he told them that they had crucified this man sent from God. Because you see, he wasn't there to please them. He wasn't there to try to be, you know, kind of figure them out. Now, here's a crowd here that, that, you know, they need to hear the gospel. But I don't want to step on any toes. I don't want to, you know, hurt their feelings. I don't want to say anything that might get them to walk away from us, you know. I don't want to say anything that might get them to think that we're the locals here and they're the, you know, they're the smart ones and all of that. I just want to kind of, you know, ease my way in. And, and Oh, no, no, no. He tells them right there as it is. And that's what we should do with a gospel of Jesus Christ, man is sinful and needs a Savior. We cannot play with the souls and the hearts and the lives of men. And Peter never batted an eye when he tells them that they had crucified this man sent from God because he wasn't there to please them. He was there to tell them the truth. 
And the same goes for this day, on this hour, as we hear the gospel. If you've never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need Him because He died for you. What a contrast now as we look at Peter here. What a contrast from the man who had denied Jesus a few weeks previous. Nearly two months had gone by, but he had denied Jesus three times. Yet here he stands in boldness to the ones, many of them in the crowd who were there the day that Jesus was crucified. But he tells them that God raised him up. He tells them that God raised him up. This is what he said, literally saying this. Putting an end to the agony, the birth pains of death. That God raised him up. When he says, having loosed the pains of death, he said, putting to an end the agony, the birth pains of death. You see, we would think these were the death pains. But no, they were the birth pains. Why the birth pains? Because you see... The tomb was not a tomb for Jesus. It was a womb. He was going to rise again. He was going to be alive again. And I tell you what a great phrase for Peter to use here. Certainly inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he says it was not possible. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by the power of death. Nor was it possible for Jesus to remain dead. Great statement. Whom God raised up, (coughs) having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I I like this because, you see, it's an interesting thing to me that that the agnostic and the atheist take that position that the resurrection of Jesus Christ could never be possible. Oh, they say, well, it's just contrary to nature. It's, It's contrary to natural law. Well, you know, it never took place. Well, it was a lie that was disseminated by the disciples who actually stole his body and and faked his burial. And the lies can go on and on and on that they, that they say. But God then takes the same position when confronted with the unbelief of men. If they say, oh, it's impossible for, for, you know, for anyone to be raised from the dead, God takes the same position. He says, oh, by the way, it's impossible for Jesus to be bound by death. You've got to know who this Jesus is. It is impossible for Jesus to be bound by death. Why do we know this? Because He was without sin. Because He died uh, to be made sin for us, to pay the price for our sin. And the resurrection was part of that determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. And so it was not possible for Jesus to be bound by death and to remain dead. And this leads us to the second point that that Peter now takes us to, which is Jesus' resurrection being convincing because of the Word of God. Notice in Acts chapter 2, let's go on in verses 25 to 32. That Peter says, for David says concerning him. Now, now Peter begins to quote from the Psalms in Psalm 16. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now Peter expounds on this and he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you 
of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ. In other words, here we find that what David is saying is not about himself, but about the Messiah. It is about the Messiah who is to come from him to be his Lord and his Master. And he says, he spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Which brings to mind the very fact that he was raised on the third day. It was common Jewish and traditional law in the times that by the fourth day, the body would, uh, would be officially de- uh, declared dead, but that was because it was the fourth day that, that, the, that the corruption would, would really have set in. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. And so you see that the Holy One, His flesh, did not see corruption. So He says to them, this Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So taking everything that was His recognizable credentials and bringing them to the place of this statement of resurrection so the theme then of the resurrected jesus is now being developed by peter and he quotes as i said from psalm 16 verses 8 through 11 to point out that the psalmist david was writing prophetically applying the passage to messiah and not to himself it reminds us of jesus teaching style which he imparted to his own disciples there at the end of luke chapter 24 if you look at verses 44 and 45 for just a moment notice the things that jesus says here he says that he says to his disciples these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written, notice, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. How would he not mention the Psalms? For there in the Psalms is where we find that he is resurrected. And he opened their understanding, Peter Being one of them, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. And now we see why Peter is preaching the way he's preaching. David was already dead and buried, as the text tells us. But when he wrote this psalm, he was acting as a prophet of God to write about Messiah and that his soul would not remain in Hades, by the way, the temporary realm of the dead. And so Jesus bore the full wrath of God on the cross as if he were the guilty sinner, as if, as if he was guilty of all of our sin, even having been made sin for us. Just as, Dave, uh, as, just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, when he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But even in his death, even in his death, Jesus remained the Holy One. You see, the psalmist said that the Holy One would not see corruption. That God would not allow His Holy One to see corruption. And so Jesus remained the Holy One because He bore our sin without becoming a sinner. He bore our sin without becoming a sinner. And so because it is totally inconceivable that God's Holy One should be bound by death, The resurrection was absolutely and inevitably convincing. 
because it was based on God's Word. And Peter and the rest of all, uh, and, and, and the rest were all witnesses of this blessed event. They all saw Jesus after He rose from the dead. They not only saw Him, but they touched Him, and they embraced Him, and they were with Him, they ate with Him, they, they saw what He did, they heard what He said. John testifies to this at the beginning of his letter to the churches, 1 John chapter 1. When he talks about seeing and, t- and handling the word of life, which was Christ and is Christ. And so this prophecy was fulfilled. The prophecy given by David in, in Psalm 16, fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Those in the crowd now, you see, you have to understand this. Those in the crowd were now backed into the corner because he presents the word to them and makes it real clear. They crucified him, but God raised him. Not only did he raise him, but now the third point and the third proof was that Jesus is the reigning Christ at God's right hand. And you'll notice in Acts 2, verses 33 through 36, it says, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you now see and hear. So again, he makes reference to the questions that they had about what was taking place that day when the sound of the rushing mighty wind was going by there and the, the, the tongues were being dispersed upon the 120. And then the 120 began to speak in, in unknown tongues to them, but known to the people in the crowd. And they were saying, they're, they're, what they're doing is proclaiming the word and the full works of the Lord. And what is going on here? And Peter again comes back to that and, and, and he says to them, he says, he poured out this which you now see and hear. The Spirit is being poured out. It's being poured out on all flesh. And it's going to be poured out on all flesh throughout this whole age from here on out until the coming of the Lord again. And in verse 34 it says, For David did not ascend into the heavens. It wasn't David that ascended into the heavens. But he says of himself. I should say he says himself. I shouldn't say of himself. He says himself. The Lord said to my Lord. The Lord God, the Father, says to my Lord Jesus, Sit at my right hand. Till I make your enemies your footstool. He's not talking about David. He's talking about Messiah. So then in verse 36 he says, Therefore, here's his conclusion, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly, in other words, with assurance, know this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this time, quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, Peter pointed out that David had been given the understanding that a descendant would, uh, of his would be the Master and the Messiah over him. Someone coming from him, someone coming out of David's line, would in fact be his Lord and Christ, which is his Master and Messiah, over him. This is why he says, the Lord said to my Lord, speaking of Messiah. And the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit was the crowning proof. The coming of the Holy Spirit was the crowning proof. Jesus was not only alive. He was now sitting at the right hand of his father, the right hand of power. In heaven. Jesus was not only alive, he was sitting at the right hand of the Father. Now, this is important. 
The focus is on the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. He is focusing upon the baptizer. Who's the baptizer with the Holy Spirit? Jesus Christ. If Jesus is dead, He cannot send the Spirit. If Jesus is dead, this cannot be happening. But it's happening because Jesus is alive and He's sitting at the right hand of power in heaven and He is doing exactly what He said He would do. I go to my Father, I will send you the promise of the Spirit. If He's dead, it can't happen. So, we, so He must be alive. You see, He is presenting the proofs of Jesus' resurrection. He's presenting the proofs of the very fact that everything that's happened is, is because of Jesus Christ, the one they crucified. And by the way, remember what Jesus said in John chapter 16, verses 5 through 7. Listen carefully. We've got, we went through this uh, there toward the end of, of our study of the Gospel of Luke. But Jesus said, But now I go away to Him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. So they were waiting for the promise of the Father that Jesus gave to them. He, he gave them a promise. I will send Go wait in Jerusalem and I'll send you the promise of the Father. And they waited in faith for what Jesus was going to send to them. He couldn't send it to them if He wasn't alive, if He hadn't risen, if He hadn't ascended into heaven, because He had to go home to, you know, to, to send it. And so what a conclusion then that Peter gives them. In verse 36 he says, Therefore, let all of the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both Master and Messiah. Jesus, proved by the Scriptures that He is Messiah indeed. And it, by the way, folks, listen, it would be a hopeless thing. It would be a hopeless thing for those who were convicted of having crucified the Lord Jesus Christ if He had remained in the tomb. What a hopeless thing. Peter could have been up there preaching and saying, you were the ones that, that crucified the Lord Jesus and He's dead. But if He's still dead, there's no hope. You see, we have to look at this from the very standpoint of the fact that Jesus is alive and what Peter is doing is not preaching condemnation. He is preaching Christ crucified and resurrected. What a hopeless thing it would be if Jesus indeed is not raised. Thousands and thousands of years now. Oh, almost 2,000 years. And what do we have People telling us, oh, listen, we, I, we think we might have found the tomb of Jesus. See, they're hope, they're, those poor people are hoping against hope. They just don't want this to happen. Why? I don't know why, to be honest with you. Who wouldn't want the hope of eternal life in Christ Jesus? But you see, the price is, is high. I'd have to give myself all up to all that. And I, don't, I like what I'm doing here on this earth. I like the world. I like sin. I like corruption. I like to stink. Spiritually. I mean, that, that's the way some people think, you know. I don't need God. What, what, what do we need God for? What, what's all this stuff about the Bible? And all? No, I'm having too much of a good time. Some of us thought that way at one time, right? 
Well, not too many amens there. But I know. I know better. (laughs) You see, this wasn't about preaching condemnation to them. It was about their Savior, their Messiah. It was about their Savior and through Him being saved from sin and death for all eternity. He is not dead. He is alive. And He is still Lord. And He is Messiah. That was Peter's message. We've taken two weeks to look at it. Peter, in just a few minutes, made it very clear. And what was the response? Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. You see, that's conviction. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? And then Peter said to them, Repent, (laughs) and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Now I'm going to spend next week dealing with, with this particular passage here. We're going to close here shortly. But I want to deal with just this, this response for just a moment. Because when they heard this, they were convicted, they were cut to the heart. You know the Word of God cuts... It's a two-edged sword, we're told in the Scriptures, in the book of Hebrews. The Word of God is a two-edged sword. In one way it cuts with conviction, in another way it heals. When a surgeon uses a scalpel, he's, he's using it to bring healing. Sure, the, the, the initial cut hurts. The initial cut exposes what's inside. God already knows that. They were cut to the heart of their sin. And not just the very fact that they had crucified the Lord. But as deep as as that cut would go, they saw their own hearts far from God. No matter how many times they sacrificed animals, you know, once a year so that they would be, you know, kind of get, get a fresh start as it were. No matter how many times they offered sacrifices and offerings unto God, they saw their heart for what it was. But the double-edged sword of God's Word cut the other way as well. It cut to heal. The question remains. See, one thing that we don't see here is, is this, this modern idea of, of invitation, as it were. Yeah, and, and invitations are good. But Peter doesn't invite. He doesn't finish and he doesn't say, Therefore, all let all the hells of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Okay, now everybody, with every head bowed, every eye closed. <laughs> 
We don't see that here in the text. I'm not trying to make fun of that. I think it's important sometimes that we, that we listen carefully to what's been said and we need to respond. But you see, it was a very clear-cut thing. Listen, this is what you've done. But this is what God has done. He is Lord and He is Messiah. And their response, because of their conviction, was what shall we do? No invitation was given to say, well, just say this prayer. The first word was the same word that Jesus began his earthly ministry when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Peter said, repent. Turn completely away from your sins. Turn and go in the opposite direction from the way you were going. Go in the direction now of God. He says, repent and then let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And we're going to deal with, like I said, we're going to deal with that next time. But, but the question was asked, what shall we do? Have we asked that question? What shall I do? If we've never asked that question before, now I, I, I take it that most of you, if not many of you, of course, are, are, are believers in Jesus Christ to this day. You, you receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and, and so you're sitting here today redeemed. But maybe some of you aren't. Maybe some of you have not taken seriously the things that Peter laid before the, the, the Jewish crowd there, which is being laid before you today as well. This Jesus that was crucified is alive today. And He died on that cross for you. For your sins. He bore your sins on that cross. And He's inviting you to come to Him. Jesus said, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. This is the life that we lived before we lived for Jesus Christ. We labor. We may not have labored in, in, in the worldly sense. We, we may not have labored or, 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 or were heavy laden in the sense of just, you know, going through life and, and going from job to job and, and from entertainment to entertainment and one thing or another. We, we, you know, we, we, we just went on and tried to live life thinking everything was going to be okay. I was hearing someone say this morning on, on TV that... Uh, uh, you know, there's some people who think that when they die, they just go to heaven. It's just, it's just ingrained in them. That's, that's what they think. Well, I die, I go to heaven. But that's not what the Bible says. To see the kingdom of God, we have to turn away from this world and we need to turn to the God who created us and especially to His Son, Jesus Christ, who came to die for our sins because we're sinful. All have sinned, by the way. Romans, Gentiles, Jews, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. What shall I do? What we do is we have to be obedient to what Jesus says. We need to respond to His invitation. Come to me, all you who are uh, uh, who labor and are heavy laden in guilt and in sin and in, in the wickedness and the in the, just the ugliness of this life. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. That's what we need to respond to. The love of Jesus Christ. 
There's God's love written all through this message of Peter to his own people. I had a thing in the paper this week, you know, some guy came to El Paso, calls himself a prophet, you know. Some of you may have seen that little article. He said he came over here because, you know, he said the Lord sent him here to El Paso because, you know, those ministers, you know, they're not, they're not leading people into truth. He's the one who's going to do it, you know. I, I thought about the audacity, you know, first of all. Someone said that somebody you know, has to come because, folks, we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not here to respond to a man. We're here to respond to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who died and rose again. Jesus. It's his love. He's already come. The hour of visitation is not this, this prophet that comes in the embassy suites and then, you know, after three days leaves with the money and takes off. Jesus came. There was only one person who said the hour of visitation. And that's Jesus. That time's come. Let's pray.